saving the world starts with you. And you don't have to be a superhero to get it done. All you need to do is be more sustainable and make your habits more environmentally friendly. Sustainable U is here today to show you how. Sustainable U is underwritten in part by Terhune Orchards, 330 Cold Soil Road, Lawrence, 200 acres of locally grown Jersey fresh fruits and vegetables with country style service. Rye University, Office of Sustainable Management and Bronx Go Green, Team Toyota of Princeton, Route 1 South Lawrence. Are you part of the team? Lawn Crafters, give your lawn a little TLC. And the Trenton Farmer's Market, 960 Spruce Street, Lawrence. The area's original and most trusted farmer's market, open all year round. Now let's learn how to thank Mother Nature for her nurture with today's segment of Sustainable You. 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com, live from Clarnie's Public House Studios. This is Sustainable You. I am one of your hosts, Dean Riddle, and I'm joined by Jaleesa Malvern. To kick things off this week, I want to talk about something which I think is truly amazing, in my opinion. So I'm sure a lot of you have heard about Chernobyl, the big uh, radioactive plant, the disaster in Ukraine. I think it happened in, in 1989, if I'm not mistaken. It was around that time period, anyway. Yeah. Um, and it was really bad because, like, a day after, like, there was there was a fire that lasted for about ten days, just pure radioactivity, just raging, just from that plant. It was crazy. Um, and that ended up, unfortunately, ended up killing around fifty people, like within within the whole lifespan of it, and up to today, it killed about uh, fifty people, and. There's probably others that are living with uh, serious health effects from it, which is very unfortunate. Yeah. It, was a, it was a huge disaster. And the whole thing about nuclear energy, I mean, that's that that's a debate that maybe we'll delve into deeper in this segment. Um, I have my own opinion about uh, nuclear, and uh, I don't know. That's just that part of it. But apparently there was a study done from Victoria Gill, who is a scientist, and she went there— and she found that there are parts of Chernobyl that are less radioactive than even the airplane they rode in on, which is insane. Because everything around us, there's going to be background radiation. I'm actually, we actually recently in my chemistry lab class, we actually just finished a lab experiment where we, uh, we measured the radioactivity of metastable 137 barium, which in layman's terms it's just it's a it's a type of an element that is not stable but the thing is with that element it's stable enough to be measured the half-life of it and uh basically anything that has uh, a long half-life is considered radioactive now there are certain elements that are more radioactive than others there are some that are more harmful than others um th these plants use uranium uranium 235 is wow. the uranium that's used and if that leaks, then that's really bad. Uranium is pretty harmful if it's, if yeah. it's exposed, and that's exactly what happened in Chernobyl. And it was predicted that it would be the, the site would be damaged for years, that nothing would be able to be done there, and it was just really bad. But after the study, after she visited this site, she found there was there was a certain unit um, there with the plane they rode in on there was like 1.8 milliservians or something i'm pretty sure that was the measurement and at chernobyl it was just 0.6 milliservians which is a wow. third of just the radiation they dealt with on the plane and obviously the radiation they dealt with on the plane obviously it wasn't harmful to them i mean that's still a very small amount and think people go on planes all the time mm -hmm. so it was enough to harm them but that just shows about 
the fact that that was at 1.8 and Chernobyl's all the way down to 0.6, that just shows that things have accelerated way faster than originally anticipated. Now, that could have to do with the fact that there was a huge metal dome that was placed over Unit 4, which is the reactor that um, exploded and, and had a meltdown. That could have a lot to do with it. But um, I just think it's really amazing, the fact that this it's way shorter time than originally anticipated and that life, yeah. like life could be sustained there again. Maybe not now, but soon. I agree with you, Dean. Maybe life can be sustained in the next couple of decades. But um, I know um, when Chernobyl happened, it was pretty devastating. Um, mm -hmm. and the, when the nuclear reactor, when it um, had exploded, I remember learning about it and that the, um, the, the, the chemicals in the atmosphere from the uranium that traveled to different parts of Europe and spread oh, through, yeah. through Asia and even kind of to to the U.S. kind of Pacific um, area, the Pacific area. Mm -hmm. And um, there was concerns about that. Um, everybody, I know everybody was really um, kind of um, um, careful and kind of seeing, looking um, that that wouldn't affect their area. Well, yeah, it's terrifying because yeah. the ashes that were let off from those, from the fires, as I mentioned before, the, the ashes that were let off were very much contaminated from the, mm -hmm. from the uranium-235. It was very much radioactive, and those ashes were so light, they would get taken on the air currents, like high up in the, in the atmosphere, too. They'd get taken from the air currents, and then they would go pretty much all across Russia, and they would—you're right, some of it would even reach Hawaii, maybe even parts of California, too. Yeah. And that's the thing. It was not a local health hazard. It was— it was a hazard for like half of the world, if not more, because it would just it would get everywhere. And it's one of those things there there was such an influx across the world of um of like birth defects and, and cancer and scientists didn't know why for a while. And now we can see it's because the particles that were let off, they were so lightweight that they could easily be taken and it was uh, negatively affecting people. Yeah. And um even like Chernobyl, I've heard that they hadn't um, recovered um, even like 10 years after that. And I know oh, yeah. um, they said that um, a lot of children were born with um, birth defects as a result. And um, af after that, like, it's um, shocking that now there's like um, more radiation um, than um, Chernobyl. Um, you would th thought that that was the most... Um, deadly form of um radiation but uh, there's plenty of radiation like just um some certain um places you go and um i know that there's um some radiation is natural oh or... yeah i mean the room that we're recording this in is there there's radiation around us radiation I mean, the microphones yeah we're using the the computer we're using all the technology any as long as there's technology in a room there will be radiation and even if yeah. there's not technology the walls around us could be emitting radiation. I mean, radiation is going to be, it's a natural thing. Radiation is all around us. And mm -hmm. that's the thing. We, we, if we take it in such small doses, it's not going to harm us. Our, our bodies have some sort of slight resistance to radiation. And because we have our own immune system and say yeah. radiation were to cause an abnormality in, you know, one of our cells or something, yeah. our immune system is supposed to find that and track that down and stop it basically. Yeah. What gets dangerous is when gamma rays are hitting us, and gamma rays are the most harmful form of radiation. Um, when gamma rays hit us, 
at such high dosages that our bodies can't recover quickly enough from it and it kind of overcomes our bodies and that's what causes uh the cancer to form or the birth defects uh any any of that bad stuff any of that stuff that we don't want but what i find really kind of amazing about chernobyl is there are animals that are already moving back into the environment in the exclusion zone in this zone that was set apart from the public that the public couldn't go into there are animals that are already going back into it i mm-hmm. think that uh scientists actually released horses into it to see how they would adapt to the environment and after years they're finding that the horses are actually adapting quite well to it and the horses seem to be healthy the the young that they produce the offspring they seem to, to produce they seem to be totally fine no apparent birth defects so i mean i feel like that speaks a lot for itself there too and not to mention there are other wild animals moving in too there's also lynxes moving in which uh i i think they're native to the environment and the fact the fact that species are moving back into this environment already it, it shows where ukraine well it shows where chernobyl and maybe even ukraine as a whole are because i feel like the like pretty much all of ukraine was affected by it even though yeah. even though chernobyl itself and the areas surrounding it like pripyat ukraine pripyat. Uh, they were severely affected and i think pripyat i think pripyat now is actually the most radioactive part i'm pretty sure pripyat you still don't want to go to because that's still part of the exclusion zone and there's a yeah. little there, uh, i'm looking at like a little map and pripyat is where it pretty much seems to be uh the focus of it ironically chernobyl is actually in the lower end of it so i don't know maybe maybe that shows how, like the uh the way the wind was spreading then if, if there's more radiation in those areas rather than in chernobyl itself i think it's really interesting um how it moved over like that because you would think that it would stay local to chernobyl but um i guess i'll i'll, I'll talk about i'll you know what i'll stay kind of on topic but shift a little bit i want to talk about nuclear power um nuclear power i have my own feeling about nuclear power um i actually i actually i really see it from both points of view with nuclear um i feel like nuclear is a great short-term solution to an energy crisis i say great short-term solution because it is it's carbon neutral um nuclear power is carbon neutral and there's really not there's not many short-term negative effects to using nuclear power. I mean, the worst part is the cost of producing it. The The costs yeah. of producing a nuclear power plant are huge. They're astronomically high. They're so high. It's ridiculous. But once it gets funded, pretty much it's going to pay for itself in no time because it's there's so little emissions. Again, though, in the short term. When those uranium rods run out of of half life, basically, yeah, basically, because it's the radiation that powers it. When those when those rods run out, though, the mm-hmm. biggest question is how do you dispose of it? And yeah. we, even to this day, thirty years later after Chernobyl, when that was like Chernobyl is one of the first uh, big power plants, nuclear power plants ever produced. Wow, we still can't think of a way to be able to uh, bury it now uh, or discard it. Now there have been uh solutions where people are proposing that you encase it in these lead capsules and you bury it deep underground or i know there's uh there's a place in nevada where you can uh they take it up to a mountain and they store it away in a mountain but the problem is is that you're not fixing a solution you're just moving the problem we don't know we don't have any way to actually fix the problem which is 
one of the biggest issues and that's mm-hmm. why that's why i say nuclear power is good because yeah. there there are good aspects to it we just can't think of a way to think to discard of the the waste of it and that's the biggest issue with it the waste nuclear power itself is great i i think nuclear power itself is honestly a great method of fuel it's yeah. uh, it's one of if it weren't for the waste it would be unrivaled in fuel sources absolutely unrivaled because there's really nothing bad about it other than the waste and yeah then you run into the problem that chernobyl ran into where if there's one slight issue with the plant then it could result in huge problems for years and years and years down the line i mean Mm -hmm. i i think there was um i'm trying to think uh fukushima i think fukushima was another one in japan that they were hit by a tsunami and there was a really big uh radioactive waste leak and that also had really big negative effects and um just with Chernobyl, they said that um, they they would open um, some of their some of their businesses up in the town, and they have and like certain parts of it like are um, a, a, a no um, trespassing zone for people because um, of the, the radioactive um, elements. But it's something how they're they're able to like um, open some parts of it, like according to the article. You wouldn't Which, think think that. I mean, it's really good. It's really good on both the uh, on the economic aspect and the environmental aspect because I'm curious now thinking about how these plants because plant life seemed to have not been affected that much. It, it seemed like throughout this time, plants have been able to grow pretty well in in the Chernobyl, uh, the whole exclusion zone. Plants have been able to grow, so I really wonder how plants have been affected by it, if they've been affected at all, but. Nevertheless, it's really cool to see that life is starting to spring back up in the area, and it's really kind of hopeful for the future. But unfortunately, we are at a time in this segment of Sustainable U, but we'll be right back on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. Whoever said it's not easy being green? Uh-oh. Now let's get back to learning how and reduce, reuse, and recycle with Sustainable U. Yeah! 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com, live at Cardi's Public House Studios. This is Sustainable You. I'm one of your hosts, Jaleesa Malvern, and I'm joined by Dean Riddle. So in the second segment of our topic, we'll be talking about um, a new model that predicts how ground shipping will affect future human health and the environment. And basically, um, it explains that shipping through um, trucks and trains um, emits a lot of gases, and greenhouse gases rather, and um, particles that threaten the human health and the environment. And they say by 2050, um, there was a new model that predicted this, and they said that there will be human mortality rates and um, there will be um, long-term climate change effects. And they said, um, basically, um, for example, they said like trucks on the roads and how people use different goods um, as the economy grows, um, um, that kind of spreads as um, population increases. So basically, it's kind of um, um, very explanatory. When you have more of a population, there's more of a demand on needs like necessities, food, clothes, shelter, and also what people want and need. And like, especially in a densely populated area like New York City or somewhere like that, um, LA, 
you have people who um you have more people and you have more of a need for necessities and um wants too so um people are relying on a lot of shipment um through sites like amazon walmart um etc and um this is um it's it's becoming more simplistic like we're mm-hmm. becoming more um sim- um simple in our society and very everything's at our available at our fingertips and technology's advancing and it's allowing us to order um not online and we don't have to rely on just going to the store down the street or going to the mall to buy clothes and stuff we could um do it on line and um it's helpful but is it necessary um feasible um is it is it good for the environment well unfortunately uh the general population doesn't care about that because the general population is all about convenience and yeah convenience that's, that's how industries win it's all about convenience it's whatever's the most convenient and that's the whole thing that's why online shopping is so much bigger that's why amazon amazon prime example is so much bigger than it was 10 years ago because yeah technology is advanced and amazon has done so well to adapt with it that that's why amazon is almost unrivaled now amazon is probably it's it's definitely the biggest shopping industry in the world definitely uh, i think walmart it's is all actually around. i think walmart's actually second which is surprising yeah. that actually is surprising because they're still a regular supermarket but you can also buy online from walmart and walmart too and like not just that the a lot of stuff amazon has walmart has and stuff that's not fine found in a walmart store is available on their website mm-hmm. and that's a competitor amazon and when you have all those companies um, that that they ha- all have to re- re- rely on trucks and trains, and especially if it's out of the country, it takes longer to ship. But sometimes this being shipped by boat and um, shipping it on a boat's not necessarily any better either. Yeah, it's really not. You, you would think it is because <laughs> uh-uh. because it's you know oh it's an airplane <laughs> and people think you know an airplane's so bad. I mean no using using a uh, airplane obviously they use jet fuel which yeah, is yeah jet fuel a very uh, a very interesting type of fuel, but using using a regular steamboat or whatever, or any just big rig boat, I mean, it's it's not going to be any better because they're still going to use fuel. And then when you use when you use a boat, you have to worry about it uh, sinking. You, you have to worry. There are, there have been so many mistakes, so many accidents where huge shipments on boats they you know have like- they, there's a problem in the hole, and then all that falls into the ocean. So. I think boats are actually less safe than airplanes because yeah, there are. aren't. I haven't heard of. I mean, yeah, there have been issues, but there's not a lot of issues with airplanes. As long as airplanes are maintained carefully and the pilots are competent, airplanes really are pretty safe. Airplanes at this day and age are pretty safe, and yeah. they're honestly probably a better option than boats because I feel like they make less emissions overall than boats do. Yeah, and it's bad for um, the uh, marine life when you're doing that, um, when you're shipping products by boat, and um, also by trucks and trains, and also the 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 fact that we're reliant so reliant on um, shipping. Um, like I said, that's a problem. And even they have now a lot of um, apps where you could buy groceries and have it shipped to your door. Like um, there's um, a new one. I forget what it's called. There's DoorDash. Um, DoorDash. Um, um, shipped. Uh, shipped. Uber. Well, um, Uber shipped. Um, I think. And it's kind of like that's a new one. And um, there's um, Amazon has um, groceries that you could get delivered. That's true. And um, we're just so 
um, revolved around shipping and even stores um, to um, a lot of um, um, department stores like Walmart, um, Target, all their inventory comes from shipments. All their um, has mm -hmm. to um, be shipped across the um, countries, truck drivers driving cross country um, from states to state and like um, many, many miles and that's um, bad emissions. And it's um it's very um it's very it's it's not the best. Yeah, exactly. And even if you look at it from a deeper point of view, um, with these expanding industries, obviously they're going to need more vehicles to obviously transport all of their goods. So that means that they're going to be buying more trucks. And guess what? Those trucks have to use materials that come from deep inside the earth. I mean, it could be iron, it could be copper, it could be gold. I know platinum is definitely something used because platinum is used in the the um, catalytic converters in, in, in vehicles now. So platinum is involved, and platinum is a really rare metal, and they probably have to go through so much mining to get that platinum. So it's it's affecting the earth too, like kind of directly, honestly, because they have to go through all this mining to get it. And while obviously these industries are not going directly mining for it, they're not going mining for it, but they're buying it from other industries that do. So then these other industries have to go mining for it. And then it's using more resources in the earth. And then to get to mine through it, you need to use these fuels to power these machines that mine in the earth. So you're using more fuel, you're mining in the earth, and not to mention you're, you're kind of damaging the earth too because you're, you're doing all this deep mining. And then you put the workers at risk too because then they're in these mines and they could get dust accumulation in their lungs. And mm -hmm. it, I mean, I know black lung is a whole thing with coal, but I, I'm sure there's something that could also happen with regular mining where it's just not good for your lungs. I'm sure it's, there's something like that. And speaking of that, that's what the article does said, um, that the particulate matter that's released from um, the trucks and the trains um, causes um, inhalation-related inhal um, diseases, which implies the lung, conditions of the lung. Yeah. And, that that that's bad because like it's creating pollution and we all know what pollution um um affects um you know the smog we talked about the denorous smog um that that's bad because it's it's just from a um excess amount of pollution and that could happen when you're when you have trucks and trains continuously um um creating shipments and like everything yeah, I mean, mesothelioma is the, the first one that comes to mind. And uh, yeah. it's definitely not something getting better over time. I mean, <laughs> I, I see those commercials. Those, I mean, I see those commercials for um, like a lot of like lawyers or whatever, where it's like, if, you know, if you've been affected by mesothelioma, then contact us or something. I feel like I see more and more of those on TV now. So they kinda, it kind of shows that mesothelioma, it's not a dying issue. It's in fact a growing issue. And that definitely has something to do with all of the vehicles being used because obviously these vehicles they emit greenhouse gas emissions and it's going to release other particulates that as Jalisa said will cause serious health concerns uh mesothelioma being just one of them there are other health concerns too i i'm sure that if you were to inhale enough then it could cause lung cancer or something as just an example i don't know all the details i don't know everything that it could be caused or it could cause but it you know that could be one of them um and then if you're looking at it from a more uh, environmental point of view, uh, I actually, in one of my classes today called uh, Weather and Climate Change, really interesting class, by the way, I love that class, but um, we did, there, there was a website we found, and I don't remember the website name at all, but uh, we looked at a website, and if we continued our rate of greenhouse gas emissions, then 
by 2080, we would have similar wow. weather climate to that of Mississippi. Mississippi, Mississippi, wow. which is about in the winter even 10 degrees warmer than it is now. And wow. I, this winter is really weird. It's not it even like weird. it's that cold of a winter. I know we had that polar vortex, but that's the thing. It It's not a solid cold winter. It's just a week of super cold and then it's back to like almost like a moderate winter and it's really weird so it is we're very weird imagine having a winter where it's like constantly 50 degrees could you imagine that i couldn't imagine (laughs) that and the the thing about that they're trying to push towards more cleaner and efficient um ways of um transportation and um that would be good if um they could use cleaner energy for the trucks but they said that's um that didn't happen like about 10 years ago the petroleum prices have very um spiked and um shippers want to switch from trucks to rail but like the capacity was very insufficient but i mean that that could also be a reason why they're not um they're still reliant on trucks because of the petroleum um cost they want to be more um like economic um companies and they they don't, it's too expensive to well, have you know, um there, more there sustainable is, there's there is a pretty viable albeit short term it it is a short term solution but there is actually a really viable solution right now it's called CNG which is compressed natural gas i've actually seen it sold at like one Wawa. I've seen one Wawa where they sell it and it only certain be. vehicles can take it. But it's literally exactly as it sounds. It's compressed uh it's compressed natural gas and uh you can put that in certain vehicles and it's an almost no emission fuel that vehicles can use. Now granted these vehicles have to be retrofitted to use it and it'd be expensive, but that'd be a great short term solution. Uh I mean there's so many more logistics that go into it, but if a lot of these companies, like Amazon, prime example, if Amazon could start using vehicles that use compressed natural gas, then that'd be huge. And it'd probably save them a lot of money too, and it'd be better for the environment. But unfortunately, we are at a time in this segment of Sustainable You, but we will be right back after a few short underwriting announcements, only on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7thebronc.com. Whoever said it's not easy being green? Now let's get back to learning how and reduce, reuse, and recycle with Sustainable U. 1077 The Bronx and 1077TheBronc.com, live from Killarney's Public House Studios. This is Sustainable U. I'm one of your hosts, Dean Riddle, and I'm joined by... Jaleesa Malvern. So for our third segment, we're going to talk about something which I think is groundbreaking and really cool and could definitely be really helpful for the environment. So... In Estonia, they are producing uh, something that they're calling a chemical nose. And this chemical nose, it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's something that it's able to find certain chemicals or toxins in the environment. And what's so great about this one in particular, because they've made others in the past that they like they kind of work, but they don't work that well. And they just they kind of don't really do much. But this one is very effective. And what these chemical noses do is they're able to go into any environment where maybe there were uh, suspicious of some sort of chemical leak or a toxin leak or maybe an outbreak of, of something, an outbreak of something, maybe even diseases. I'm not too sure if it's able to do this yet in particular, but anything that uh, is suspected to be abnormal in an environment this chemical nose, I, I put in air quotes. I mean, yeah. Julissa can see I'm 
literally putting it in air quotes and I say chemical nose because chemical nose, yeah, it's not literally nose. It's it, not a nose. It's, it's figuratively. Yeah, it's a very, very complex uh, instrument that scientists use. And what's so cool about it is it's actually. I'm going to relate it to biology because I took biology last year. And if there's one thing I remember from that class, which I found very interesting, it had to do with receptor molecules uh, or, uh, yeah, receptor molecules. And, okay, so receptor molecules, the way they work is it's basically it's something, again, I'm, I'm going to say this in biology terms, but that this can be easily related to this. Receptors work by... There's there's certain things that bind to it, and once that binds to it, it opens that that cell to allow certain things in, or it starts a process in a cell, and it just like it continues it on and on and on. It's like a treadmill kind of. It's like I think they literally call it um, like a receptor treadmill, uh, from what I remember. And this is going from a year back, so I don't remember everything. This is I, I'm remembering parts, but I'm trying to relate it to this, and it reacts in a way that it causes a cell to react and then it causes chain reactions within the cell to either release other other um other proteins in the cell and then it releases other proteins and other receptors activate and so on and so forth and basically this is doing exactly that where it has receptors in it and Mm -hmm. then it needs something to bind to it so once something binds to those receptors then it makes uh it makes a reaction and then the machine can tell when there's some sort of toxin or some chemical in that environment. And, um, Dean, they said that the research um, group would build receptor molecules um, for these chemical noses. They said they will make container molecules. I don't know how to pronounce this name, but I'm going to go for it. Hemicucurbiterols. Hemicucurbiterols. Interesting. I, I don't know. It, I don't know exactly what that is. I, I don't know what that is exactly, but... um. What was that? The name of the receptor molecule that they're trying to make, or yeah, they the container molecule. Okay, okay. Um, which were recently developed um by the Estonian Research um Council, and they're they were a part of um this this the the, the chemical nose. Um, uh-huh. You know, I gotta say, props research. props to Estonia. Honestly, yeah, big, big big props to Estonia. I. I just I say that because I haven't really heard anything about Estonia in a while. I it's I, I just I don't know much about Estonia. So because they're small they're a small country, so they don't really come out with that much. But the fact that Estonia is coming out with something like this, this could change so much because say there is a chemical leak like from a nuclear plant, which could definitely relate to what we were talking about in the first segment. Yeah. If there's something like that, then they could use this chemical nose, and scientists could kind of determine how far out the radiation has gone. That would be one way it could be used. Or if yep. it's just a chemical leak from, like, uh, like a water treatment plant or something, that, that could be, like, a sewage leak or something, something yeah. simple like that. Then they could use that. They see how far that went, that extended to. You know, th- this could be used for so much, and this would make it so much easier for cleanup uh, of any leak whatsoever. And... It would kind of it would reduce costs because less employees would need to be employed to search for problems when they could just use this chemical nose and kind of create almost like a geofence. It'd be easy to create kind of like a geofence for how far out it's extended to because once you find when it stops reacting, that's how far it goes. And there's no more guesswork involved. 
it's all scientific now, which is the best part of it because now it is hard physical proof for how far out something goes. Yeah. Now, the problem, you know, I I feel like one thing it might not help out with too much is if something were to leak into a water supply, that's always tricky. That's always going to be a very tricky thing because as long as the water is moving, then there's always going to be traces of that contaminant in any surrounding water. It could get to a point where it's microscopic, maybe one part per billion or something, but it's always going to exist, and you never know how much that's going to affect an environment. So that's one thing that's a little bit scary about any kind of contamination leak because you never know how much is going to really affect an environment. And and that's, that's, that's very amazing how they're able to come up with a chemical nose because... This could help a lot um, um, with a lot of harmful chemicals in our environment, like Dean was saying, like the radiation from Chernobyl, and just also like what we were talking about, the greenhouse, um, like, like the pollution from from the trucks um, from shipment, shipment like we talked in the previous segment about. And um, this, was, this is a very good um, discovery, and oh, I wouldn't have thought that it, honestly would have been possible to do this yeah neither would i i mean the fact that they're creating their own molecules to do that that's pretty amazing in itself because i honestly i I shouldn't say i didn't think it was possible because i mean there are man-made elements out there i know Mm -hmm. one one of them that i particularly remember is uh einsteinium i I don't know einsteinium i remember that i don't know any properties of that element it's man-made um and it has probably very uh odd properties so and i don't even know what it's used for it might, it might have been made just to be made i don't even know but and, maybe this is another case maybe they're making a whole nother element just for this and there's another one called i think fermium like it's from that the scientist fermi and um, like einsteinium i heard of that I think one one called uh, Laurentium also. Laurentium, like kind of I'm thinking of Lawrenceville, New Jersey, where Riding University is. I th- I think I think <laughs> that I think you're right. I think that was from Lawrence, New Jersey. Really? I I I, I vaguely remember that. Huh. Interesting. Well, that, maybe that's that, very interesting. I don't know if that's. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or false. But that'd be very interesting if that was. I would definitely like to hear about that later because I I don't I'm not sure about that. I don't know about that. But. The fact, it sounds to me like they're making their own element just for the sake of detecting these toxins. And I think the challenge that isn't uh, discussed about in this article specifically is they probably need to make different uh, receptors for whatever they're trying to detect because I don't think it could be a universal receptor for everything. I think that because the way molecules work is that they only react to certain things. It all depends on the valence electrons within, you know, uh, on on the atom or the molecule. So... That's a big. That's a big thing to think about. Um, how many of these receptors need to be made, and that could probably that could take years to make a bunch. Because, like I said, I don't think that it would take just one universal receptor to find all these toxins. You'd probably need to make one different one for each thing that you're trying to find. Yeah, which would definitely be a challenge and probably very expensive. Very expensive. I was just going to say the same thing. Um, this technology is very expensive, especially if. Um, like globally it were to be adopted um like the u.s i don't think would be able to sustain that um like um nation nationally or um nationwide it's not it's not um feasible probably economically to do that right like in all of the world it's not feasible and oh i'm sorry and and also like i don't think that they would see any um reason to implement it 
into like practice. Like I don't, I don't think so. Some some countries wouldn't. I mean, see yeah, it. It, it's a very it's a very uh, case by case basis. Yes, yeah, it, very new con- a very new concept. Yeah, uh, it would you know that's the thing. It, it's a very uh, niche type of thing where yeah. you wouldn't use it for everything. Um, and it probably only detects like one thing right now. Uh, because it's very newly developed and it's probably only been made so far to detect one thing. I don't know what that is yet, but uh, I can't imagine it being used for like more than one thing as of now, as of now. I, I'm sure as years go down the line and if it gets funding from like other countries, if other countries were to uh, like fund into it and start development, like joint development with another country, like that'd be great because I think that they're already developing it with Italy. Uh, Italy is developing it with Estonia, and that's great because Italy is actually a really big country with uh, with science. They they do a lot of things with science. I know they go really deep into stem cell research, which is something I'm very interested in. I think stem cell research is really really quite interesting. Uh, I know it. Uh, people have their opinions on it, and that's fine. That's fine. People can have their opinions on that. That's no problem at all. But I think that's something that could definitely benefit humanity at some point um with the whole thing of being able to generate new organs i think that's incredible i think it's so incredible that that human organs could be generated from you know from something so simple i think it's amazing so italy does something like that and it doesn't surprise me that they're going into uh something like this with the with the chemical nose and they're because i feel like italy likes to do things that are unusual they try to break the mold and things which I commend them for that. Yeah. I really commend them for that. Uh, so I would love to see more development in this. I think it'd be very expensive and it's probably going to take a lot of time, but this could be huge and really helpful, especially for big chemical industries in the future. I'd love to see where it goes. But unfortunately, we are at a time in this segment of Sustainable You. We'll be back only on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 The Who ever said it's not easy being green? Uh-oh. Now let's get back to learning how and reduce, reuse, and recycle with Sustainable You. Yeah! 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com live at Corny's Public House Studios. This is Sustainable You. I'm one of your hosts, Julissa Malvern, and I'm joined by Dean Riddle. For the for this fourth and last um, segment of our show, we'll be talking about the hidden environmental costs of Valentine's Day rose, roses. And this is very pertinent to today because this is Valentine's Day, um, February 14th. And I know that roses are um, a high commodity especially for this day, to show somebody that you very much um, and well appreciate, whether it be your husband, wife, sister, brother, or anybody in your family or friends. But um, roses um, are very um, high. They're very high in demand, but and they're very um, costly environmentally. And this is because of the shipping, shipping, shipping methods. Um, they said that um, there's about... Um, 15,000 um, tons of flowers delivered less than a month um, leading up to um, Valentine's Day from wow. um, and, um, from Ant- the Andes to um, the U.S. And they said that um, this is um, bad because everybody, um, they kind of just deliver the flowers in a way kind of that, like, um, to kind of um, import them so, like, they don't um, go to waste. And, like, Dean was talking about that earlier, that how it was a bad thing. So do you want to um, um, say your take on it? Well, I, I know I, we, uh, me and Julissa, we, we talked a little bit about this off air uh, before we started this. And um, one of the arguments was uh, that one of the people said in this article was, uh, oh, all, all the planes are going to go there anyway. So why does it matter if, if we load them with flowers or not? 
Can I tell you how much of a flawed argument that is? That is such a bad argument, and I hate that argument so much. Because, okay, if you look at it from the short term, you know what? They're right. From the short term, the plans are still going to go there. But if demand decreases, businesses aren't going to put out so much supply because then that costs them more money. I mean, this is basic microeconomics here. I, I took microeconomics la last semester, and one of the most basic concepts that even if you don't take a microeconomics class or any economics class, supply and demand. Supply and demand, it is such a basic concept, and most people understand that, where if the demand for something decreases, then you know the supply over time is going to decrease because initially there's going to be a surplus of supply, and then what they have to do is they have to mark it down, and then they're going to take a loss. They're going to lose money off it. So then what they do is next year, if they see a trend over time, they're going to release less supply so that they don't lose as much money, so they can still sell it at the price they want to sell it at. So it's the same thing. It's the same argument made for um, with, with, with cows or something, with, with killing cows. Yeah, short term, you're right. Those cows will be killed still no matter what, whether or not you eat meat or not. And yeah, maybe it's a little hypocritical because I'm not a vegetarian, but that's besides the point. It's just, it's a bad argument because it's such a short-sighted argument and people don't look at the long-term with, the, with the, the people that say this argument, I should say. I, I should point that out. Yeah, you're you're right. And um, I know a lot of people um, go to um, um, just buying roses because um, it's cheaper than jewelry, like it said, and um, healthier than chocolates. Um, and also chocolates can be very expensive depending on the brand that you buy. And also not good for the environment. Not good for the environment with the cocoa beans yeah, yeah, exactly. that, that we were talking about. Yep. But um, it's, it's, it's not, there's definitely costs um, like to the environment with all these things. Um, and also if you buy diamonds too, that's not good for, oh, that's, oh, that's very diamonds. bad. Oh, my <laughs> but goodness. we won't talk about that argument. Oh, yeah, that's but, a whole different topic that doesn't really have much to do with sustainability. But, but yeah, diamonds. Uh, diamond wars, yeah. I don't like diamonds. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that because I'm a guy and they're expensive. I'm saying that because it's just it's just not good. The whole diamond mm -hmm. industry is really messed up right now. Yeah, it's just that they were talking about also that against um, large agriculture business and in support of small family farms that grow organic and season produce. There are thousands of people starting farm micro or um, boutique flower farms around North America and all um, 50 states. And this is um, good for um, this is good for the environment because you need like more homegrown like um, sustainable yeah. um, type um, places um, mm -hmm. to um, um, sustain to, to um, produce flowers, and these flower flowers like um, roses. Um, I know that they're this is a um, very prized like, commodity for this time of the um, season. But it's in, in in some ways it's not beneficial because a lot of the flowers are going to probably be coming from shipments. They're not going to be homegrown or, or organic because it's expensive. And um, I mean, like most of um, the flowers that you go to to the grocery store, that's probably not um, pesticide free. Yeah, probably not. And I was gonna say that's a whole that's a whole other aspect of it. Uh, pesticides. I know that most people don't want pesticides and i mean mm -hmm. obviously they don't want it and it's going to affect wherever it's grown whether it be in america or in the andes mountains or whatever it's going to spread to other places and that could obviously cause health effects too um but going back to what jaleesa was mentioning about being homegrown and all that 
I feel like what? Why can't we do that? I mean, I know there are parts of the world, obviously, right now that are cold that are experiencing an actual winter. Like, well, I don't even want to. Uh, I mean, yeah, New Jersey's experiencing an actual winter, but man, it's a weird one. Man, it's a weird winter. But like Florida, like I, I feel like Florida could definitely grow roses because Florida's always warm. Georgia too. I mean, these places are warm, and they definitely could grow roses. So even though it's not in our state. At least it's a much more local, and yeah, although there's some sort of shipping that has to be involved, which I know we just talked about shipping earlier, I feel like we're tying everything in this episode, and, and I love it. I love it how we're tying everything in. Um, but I, even though there's some sort of shipping, it's gonna be it's gonna be cheaper, and it's going to involve less greenhouse gas emissions in the process. So I don't understand why locally growing isn't can't be really done, other than the fact that. The, the labor laws are way different in the U.S. than in South America, which, yeah, I mean, it's probably, it's, it's cheaper out there. It's definitely cheaper. And you don't know, like, the conditions that um, um, any, anyone is um, working in um, down in South America, which is um, not, not the best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't, you don't know exactly what they're dealing with. And I feel like that's something else that you have to take into account. And then, obviously, the whole thing with chocolates, you know, the, the cocoa beans are kind of in a real shortage right now and that's why i gotta admit i don't like valentine's day that much because it involves all this production of chocolate and flowers and all these things that really why really why like valentine's day which is i i feel like valentine's day was made not to honor saint valentine but to honor uh yeah. industries that industry for, for yeah. fl- the flower <laughs> i feel like the flower and the chocolate industry and the candy industry in general yeah. i feel like they collaborated to make this holiday the way it is now <laughs> indeed not just only valentine's day it's also christmas yeah, I was thinking christmas that too. is very commercialized yep. and um it's not the best um environmentally like and you're cutting down trees real trees oh yeah that's not the best imagine how many trees at the cost of christmas have been um just like just like um cut down yeah absolutely uh <laughs> i just i don't even know i don't even know like how to end this i mean just like valentine's day it, it's not the best for the environment honestly i i'm not a big supporter of valentine's day I, i'm not like for no particular reason other than environmental reasons and i just feel like maybe maybe the meaning has been like taken away from it which is which is a little bit sad but unfortunately this is the end of the episode of sustainable you but we'll be back next week at the same time only on 1077 the bronc and 1077 thebronccom you just heard the best tips on how to be sustainable so go ahead and spread the gospel of green thank you for listening to this week's edition of sustainable you saturdays at 9 a.m on 1077 the bronc and 1077 thebronccom if you want to listen to any replay editions go to 1077 thebronccom and click on the sustainable you tab on the homepage. you can even subscribe to our podcast just simply search Sustainable You on iTunes. Sustainable You is underwritten in part by Terhune Orchards, 330 Cold Soil Road, Lawrence, 200 acres of locally grown Jersey fresh fruits and vegetables with country-style service. Rider University, Office of Sustainable Management and Bronx Go Green, Team Toyota of Princeton, Route 1 South Lawrence. Are you part of the team? Lawn Crafters, give your lawn a little TLC. And the Trenton Farmer's Market, 960 Spruce Street, Lawrence, the area's original and most trusted farmer's market, open all year round. Join us again for next week's edition of sustainable you on saturday at 9 a.m and be one step closer to saving the earth without a carbon footprint left behind only on 1077 the bronx